Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hey, it's Glenn Washington from Snap Judgment. And if you love what you're hearing, and I know you love what you're hearing, please consider becoming a KQED member special access to cool events behind the scenes footage and so much more plus you'll sleep better at night knowing you did your part for the community you depend upon it's in you please be in it visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to sign up now that's podcast with an s thanks from kqed From KQED Public Radio in San Francisco, this is Forum. I'm Laura Clivens. Climate change is here, and it's hard to escape its consequences in the Bay Area, from stifling heat to that eerie day last September when our skies were painted orange. It's easy to feel daunted by the enormity of this problem. At the same time, the end of this story is not yet written. So much of what we and our children will experience depends on human actions in the next few years. Today, we'll be talking about how climate change is unfolding in the Bay Area. We'll talk about the effects of smoke, heat, and sea level rise, and what we can do to address the crisis. That's next on Forum, right after this news. Welcome to Forum. I'm Laura Clivens. It's becoming harder and harder to look away from how our world is shifting due to climate change. But to achieve what we really want, to dodge the worst effects of a warming world, we have to know what's actually happening. That isn't comfortable. But today, we're inviting you to step into this and to up your climate IQ. We'll talk about three major ways climate change is showing up here in the Bay Area. Wildfires and their smoke, heat and sea level rise. And later in the hour, we'll talk about what policymakers and you can do to address the crisis. Joining us for the hour are Alejandra Barunda, environment reporter at National Geographic. Welcome to Forum. Thanks so much for having me. I'm glad to be here. Thanks for being here. Dr. Navina Baba, Deputy Director of Health at the San Francisco Department of Public Health. Welcome, Dr. Baba. Thank you. And Loretta Mickley, Senior Research Fellow at the John A. Paulson School of Engineering and Applied Sciences at Harvard University. Welcome. Thank you for having me. Well, let's start with you, Loretta Mickley. We're seeing more wildfires and resulting smoke because of global warming. How has this changed in recent years, and how will it continue to change here in the Bay Area? So, yes, indeed. Fires have increased across the western U.S. since the mid-1980s. By one estimate, the increase in the area burned by fires has quadrupled since then. In California, the increase has been even more dramatic. My colleague Park Williams estimates a fourfold, uh, sorry, a fivefold increase wow. in um, area burned in California, mainly driven by fires in forests. 
Okay. And um, to understand why this is happening and what will happen in the future, I need to say a few words about the ingredients in fire. One yes, is please. that you need an ignition source. And this ignition source can be either a human being or lightning. But regardless of the source, the spread of the fires, how big they get, depends a lot on the weather and the availability of fuel. And both of those variables, weather and fuel, have been going in the wrong direction as far as our daily lives are concerned. Um, We know that the West and California has been experiencing drought conditions for many years, severe to extreme drought in 2021 in Mm. California. Um, And this has been driven in large part due to climate change. And those high temperatures and dry weather dries out the vegetation, providing fuel for fires. Yes. Okay. And and I'm wondering, for folks who live here, we're really thinking about what is this going to look like this year and in years to come? Are we now looking at a future where we have this huge fire season and we almost surely will have weeks where we are blanketed by smoke? So the West has always burnt, always. We have charcoal records in the soil that indicate large and intense burning back in the 1100s or 1200s when it was when the West was experiencing a few intervals of warm weather. Mm. And so in recent decades, however, over the 20th century, we suppressed fires, leading to an abundance, an artificially large abundance of fuel. So this abundance of fuel, together with rising temperatures, will almost certainly lead to increasing fires in the future. We, in our group, estimated increases in fire activity, uh, depending on the measure, of something like doubling in many areas of the West compared to 2000 by the year 2050. And this will continue to occur across the 21st century. But we have a choice which, you know, which greenhouse gas scenario we want to follow going forward. Great. Well, thank you. And I want to get to that in a bit. I do want to talk about we're going to devote a significant chunk of this show to solutions. Um, And right now I want to address a little bit more of what this problem is. So tell me about this wildfire smoke and what it actually means for human health. Yes. So smoke consists of a lot of gases and a lot of particles. Um, The particles can be divided into soot, which is just very dark carbon, often wrapped in other chemicals very quickly. Um, And then there are organic particles with a whole array of chemical signatures. And these particles are can be very reactive inside the human body. The tinier particles are breathed in, get into the lungs, and can react with lung tissue, leading to um, lots of diseases, um, including acute responses and more long-term responses. So a short-term effect might be, uh, a short-term acute effect might be asthma or difficulty breathing. Mm -hmm. And this is seen in an increase in hospital um, admissions in the aftermath of a smoke event. Mm. And what are some of those longer-term effects? 
Yes, with, with regard to the longer term effects, our work shows that um, exposure to sustained smoke can lead to health problems down the road. This smoke exposure can exacerbate chronic diseases like uh, uh, cardiovascular disease, pulmonary diseases, um, and leading to stroke or other terrible consequences down the road. It's quite mm-hmm. horrible. That That is. It's hard to hear that. Um, I do want to address equity in this. We know wildfire smoke won't affect people equally, right? Some people can afford air filters while others cannot. Can you talk a bit about the issue of equity? Um, yes, this is an emerging um, area of interest amongst people in my field. And first, I want to say that most studies do indicate that if you stay indoors and use air filters, you'll be experiencing cleaner air during a smoke episode. And one would think that the wealthier people can afford this kind of equipment. Um, In our own work, we've looked at hospital admissions in the aftermath of a smoke episode and found that African-Americans are admitted into hospitals at a disproportionate rate compared to whites in the Western US. So we found three times as many blacks going to the hospital, being admitted to the hospital in Mm. the aftermath of intense smoke exposure. Mm. We don't know why. Let me make that clear. In that particular study, all we could see was this disparity, but we don't know the reasons why. Okay. Well, thank you very much. Um, I want to go now to Dr. Navina Baba, Deputy Director of Health at the San Francisco Department of Public Health. Hi, Dr. Baba. Let's um, let's talk about heat. How have temperatures changed in the Bay Area? Well, the short answer to that is that um, they're going up. And um, this has, you know, been predicted, climate scientists projected, have projected higher temperatures, more extreme heat days and longer heat waves. Um, not only, you know, within um, the country, but also um, within California and the Bay Area. Average yearly temperatures are expected to increase between 3.3 to 5.5 degrees by the end of the century, um, while annual extreme heat days are expected to increase from five currently in San Francisco to 15 to 40 by 2050, and up to 90 by by the end of the century again. Um, So really a dramatic increase um, in the heat that is expected to occur in these upcoming years. An extreme heat day is a day when the maximum temperature reaches the 98th percentile of all temperatures um, for that particular region. And I'll just mention in San Francisco, an extreme heat day um, is any day that surpasses 85 degrees. And while that doesn't seem like, um, you know, a high temperature, San Francisco is a temperate city and the housing and infrastructure is built for a cool coastal climate. Mm, Right. Right. Well, I... I would like you to explain that a little bit more. So 85 degrees, um, it doesn't maybe seem like a big deal if you live in Arizona or Texas, but why is that a problem for someone who whose body is uh, acclimatized to our San Francisco Bay Area climate? And you hit the nail on the head there. It, it typically takes um, human biology about two weeks to adapt to temperature extremes. So given that San Francisco generally does not have 85 degree um, days, 
we regularly and we regularly don't experience heat days, um, it takes a while for our body to thermoregulate. And um, you know, if we go from one day of a 60 degree day to the next of an 85 degree day, um, our bodies don't acclimate um, that quickly. Um, and in fact, an analysis done in 2006 California heat wave found that there were significant increases statewide um, on morbidities as well as emergency use. But this was particularly true in coastal um, and cooler climates, including San Francisco. Hmm. Um, I'd also add that um, one of the, the things that we are also um, concerned about is it's not just the heat wave, um, the daytime temperature, but additionally, um, nighttime temperatures tend not to go down and return to normal state. So you have a much higher um, nighttime temperature. So for example, on days where San Francisco experiences a 90 degree day, um, nighttime temperatures might still be at 70 or 75, which is a, a warm day for San Franciscans. And again, that right. is an additive um, issue in terms of thermoregulation. Okay. And then overall, you talked about this increasing morbidities, but how does this affect people's health? So the, um, the health consequences are, um, there's specific ones and there's kind of um, ones that are a little bit um, less hard to see. So the specific health in issues are heat related illness, such as heat stroke, dehydration and heat related mortality. Um, and this mortality is increased in people that have certain conditions like heart disease, um, diabetes, renal disease. Mm -hmm. So um, all of that makes people, um, certain sectors of the population, much more vulnerable to heat. Um, we also know that the elderly, as well as um, children, are also um, at higher risk for heat um, yes. okay. injury. Well, thank you for that. We're going to return to this topic in just a moment. Uh, we're coming up on a break. We're talking about how climate change is affecting the Bay Area with environment reporter Alejandra Barunda, Navina Baba of San Francisco's Department of Public Health, and Harvard Senior Research Fellow Loretta Mickley. And we want to hear from you. How have you been feeling the effects of climate change? What questions do you have about what's happening or what's to come here in the Bay Area? Give us a call now at 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. You can also get in touch on Twitter and Facebook. We are at KQED Forum or email your questions to forum at kqed.org. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Laura Clivens. We're talking about how climate change is affecting the Bay Area. And I want to go now to Alejandra Barunda, environment reporter at National Geographic. Alejandra, let's talk about sea level rise. When I first really considered what the projections for sea level rise meant, I was surprised. Um, and I think a lot of folks don't actually know where we stand with this. So I'm hoping you can give us an overview of how much sea levels have risen since we've been measuring them, and what sciences are, scientists are projecting in the coming years? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. And one that I, I think is actually really hard for a lot of people, not just you, to wrap their heads around. Because um, sea level rise is one of these 
climate challenges that that happens at a really tough scale, I think, for our brains to comprehend. It's both really fast, kind of in the long geological terms and record, and really slow uh, in terms of kind of what we experience and see on a day-to-day basis. Hmm. So what we what we know is that in 120 years or so, sea levels have already gone up about eight or nine-ish inches um, worldwide and in the Bay Area. Um, so, so we're already in the midst of something. We're seeing some effects already. Um, right. yeah. And the questions are about what, what is going to happen in the future. Um, and so scientists think that by 20, so not very long from now, uh, we're going to get another couple inches in this part of the world. Um, I think the current estimate is about five um, for the Bay Area. Okay. Uh, and then when you look a little bit farther out from that, the numbers get uh, even more dramatic. So by 2050, uh, the estimates are a little bit broader, but but kind of range from about uh, 10 inches up to almost two feet. And then once you look even beyond that uh, is where kind of the decision make about how we manage uh, climate change's drivers now really starts to make an effect. And so by end of the century, we could be looking at something between several feet up to, I think, the top. So are you, cut out, you cut out there. Can you just repeat that? At the end of the century, we'll be seeing? Oh, sorry. Um, uh, somewhere between uh, about six feet and, and 10 feet are some of the, the high-end estimates are not necessarily locked in at all, but but are are within the range of what's possible um, given the climate system is large, and those are really, really life saving numbers when you right. think about it. Right, that is absolutely huge um, to think about that, and it's it, so. What you're saying is also it is accelerating, right? Um, so, what is that? going to mean for communities around the Bay Area. We have all these places built on fill. We have our coastal communities. We have important uh, transit right by the water. What is it going to mean? Yeah, I think this is kind of kind of the big question right now. And, and what it's going to mean means a lot on, on how we as a, as a broader community respond to, to the, the growing threat and challenges based uh, we're going to be facing from climate change. But yeah, I think thing you, you already identified, which is that we really like to live by water and we really like to put yeah. things by water. We put highways by water. We put what, uh, sewage treatment plants. We put refineries. There's a lot of big infrastructure um, as well as housing and lives that are uh, located in these areas that pretty easily could get either inundated or affected by some of the other ways that sea level rise uh, changes the landscape uh, yeah. pretty soon, like now, if not within the next couple of years and decades, for sure. Mm. Um, All right, great. Yeah, well, so I think that, oh, sorry, go ahead. Oh, yeah, well, I was just going to say thank you for that. We're going to we're going to go to a few um, a few comments now. Um, so Hussam writes, is this the time to move up north to Washington or Canada and leave California? And I know this has certainly been on the mind of many people recently. So I'm wondering um, what what you think of this. What do you think of this, Dr. Navina Baba, the Deputy Director of Health at San Francisco Department of Public Health? 
I think that we know that climate change is, is a global issue. And no matter where you move to, you, you will have to face the consequences. So I think it's going to take um, a lot of political will across multiple nations to really change this trajectory. Okay. Right. Um, any other thoughts on that, Dr. or, or excuse me, Loretta Mickley? Um, yes, Dr. Mickley. Yes. So uh, fires will increase not only in California, but also the northern states as well, as many, many projections have um, estimated for the future. So I don't think there's escaping fire. You'd have to go to a treeless place like the Antarctic. Hmm. Yeah. Okay. Well, thank you for that. I'd like to go to a caller now. Caller John from Walnut Creek. You are with us. Oh, thank you. Thank you for taking my call. Thanks for calling. Um, my question is, the pandemic, I read a number of articles that the pandemic actually showed what lockdowns, working from home, all of the advantages to the planet. Birds were singing, whales were talking better in British Columbia, the Venice canals had dolphins finally in there. And it seemed to me that the people really saw what it takes to affect climate change. But since the pandemic is now over, it seems that the lessons we could have learned, people have forgotten. And there's millions of people traveling, they're driving, they're doing everything that's sort of counter to the advantages that the pandemic made to the planet. And I never hear anybody talk about what it's going to really take to impact climate change like the pandemic did. It's not something, it was just how people act. And I was wondering if your uh, speakers could talk about um, the changes they saw and how do you keep those behaviors in place to improve the planet? Alejandra Barunda, what are your thoughts on this? Yeah, that's a really interesting question. Um, so, so I I've worked on some stories uh, over the last year that uh, looked at some of the, the science that has been done to, to quantify the the effect of the pandemic lockdowns on air pollution, on uh, greenhouse gas emissions, and all these different factors. Um, and and what was really interesting was that yeah, there were some pretty noticeable effects. Um, air pollution in particular, local air pollution dropped for a little bit in some parts of the country. And our overall greenhouse gas emissions dropped by uh, about just under 8%, um, which is roughly what uh, scientists think we need to do every year to kind of get to our, our emissions reductions goals that are going to keep temperature rise in check. Um, but I think the the thing that was really important for for me to hear from some scientists and people I was talking to you about, like, the way that we did the pandemic lockdowns is not the way that anyone thinks we should do climate adaptation um, and not the way that we, we would like to kind of reshape our, our industries and the way that we live our lives. Um, going, going forward, it was, it was so rough on so many people and mm -hmm. so rough on, on business and industry. Um, and so there, there was a lot, lot to learn from that experience. But, but I think the, the kind of takeaway for me was that 
the, the things that we would like to see happen are these big structural changes. So, so being able to make it so that people don't have to make the most virtuous decision about how to live all the time in order to, to save the planet, that it's easier for us to, to do things that are uh, more sustainable in the long term. So, yeah. so, I think so can you talk, talk about... Would you go ahead and talk about what some of those solutions are, the ones that we can do, right? We can't, we can't have this sustained lockdown. Um, so what are those solutions? Uh, well, I guess it depends on what you're thinking about. In, in terms of kind of big scale uh, societal transformations, which is the thing that a lot of people are talking about right now in a way that I'm, I'm pretty excited to, to see, um, I think we know a lot of what we need to do, and it's to to figure out ways to both shrink our impact on on greenhouse gases in particular. Um, so figuring out how to electrify buildings and use electricity that we can get from renewable sources rather than from fossil fuels to to do things like drive, so to electric increase our our use of electric vehicles instead of uh, internal combustion vehicles use electricity to heat and cool our homes. Um, those kinds of things, I think, are, are what I'm I'm really interested to see develop in the next couple of years. And I, and I really like people, individuals can have a big difference, but but there's some big structural stuff that that we need to kind of work together to to change as a as a society. And of right. course, then there's yeah. the the stuff that we can do to protect ourselves. Uh, yeah. Well, let's stay with the big structural things. I want to go to you now, Dr. Mickley. Um, what are solutions uh, we can do as a society to protect ourselves from more fire and from that resulting smoke? Um, yes. Yeah, so we can do a couple things um, with regard to fire, just just fire now. Yeah. Let's focus um, in on that one. Yeah. Yeah. Um, one thing that California is beginning to think more seriously about is setting prescribed fires. These are fires intentionally set to clear out the underbrush and to thin the vegetation. Um, such fires have been set for centuries by the indigenous people. There are what, what we call cultural fire practices um, that are pretty common amongst the indigenous peoples of California. And right now there are tribes working with the government, um, the National Forest Service, to set those fires, to put in prescribed fires. There is resistance to the fires, but they would help clear the vegetation and curb the spread of the wildfires when they come through. Mm. So that's the first thing that I think um, we can advocate for. Yeah. Um, yeah. And yes. you're and you're saying there's resistance, right? Like how how can we help to um, deter that resistance? What do you mean by resistance? So I'm not a sociologist, but um, there have been um, surveys of why prescribed fires in the West are so much less common than they are in the Southeast U.S., Southeast U.S., they've been using prescribed fires for many years mm. as part of their agricultural techniques. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. The West is brings a different uh, view of nature and wildfire. Wildfire is scary. It, it truly is scary. But prescribed fires done well, done thoughtfully, 
um, can thin the vegetation and limit the spread of a wildfire when it does occur. And that is what is important. Yes. Yeah. Well, that's really good to know. And it's also, I think it's important for us to remember that there is also smoke that results from prescribed fire. Um, But it's just a matter in part of becoming accustomed to that smoke because that smoke is a lot less dangerous than the smoke we have from a, a fire that's consuming an entire town. Is that right? That's absolutely right. It's a matter of quantity. Okay. All right. Um, Yeah. Well, thank you. Um, I'd like to go to you, Dr. Navina Baba, also to just talk a bit about solutions around high temperatures. And one of our commenters brings up a really great point and says, hey, not all of your listeners are uh, in San Francisco. What about us up here in Marin? We have lots of days that are over 100 degrees. Um, So what can we do to protect ourselves um, from these warm temperatures? Right. And that's a great point that, um, you know, the Bay Area has a lot of different climates and um, extreme heat days, though, are going up throughout the Bay Area. Um, It will be different depending on where you live. But there's there are ways that you can intervene to protect yourself as well as your family. I think one of the important things that was talked a little bit about early on was the equity issues. Um, And not everybody will feel the impacts of extreme heat days in the same way. Specifically, we know people um, that are socioeconomically vulnerable um, are less likely to have resources to respond. Um, And the ways that we are looking at this, and I think um, have been proven in the literature, is really developing a community response. So um, some of the information that we learned, you know, from the 1995 Chicago heat wave was that even in communities um, that suffered from poverty, or um, systemic racism, there were differences in outcomes in terms of who died and who didn't. And part of that was that communal approach that neighbors checked on neighbors during extreme heat events, especially for um, those that are elderly and isolated. Um, And those are all preventable deaths. So getting the word word out about heat, um, knowing your neighbor, knowing who's vulnerable to heat, um, and checking on them prior to a heat event, making sure that they're well-equipped, Um, And then checking on them during a heat event really does make a difference. That's really helpful to hear. Um, And then also, you know, you're in charge of doing some of the organizing around this for the entire city and county of San Francisco. What are the Bay Area counties doing uh, about this? So um, there is a regional organization, um, the Bay Area Regional Health Inequities Initiative, um, that that we have been looking at climate change specifically and have put out a number of, um, you know, informational flyers um, in terms of heat and a unifying um, strategy around heat. Um, And as well as, you know, thinking through policy um, and legislative ways of intervening around climate change. So that it is not just one county um, doing this on their own, but that we really do have a unified approach. Okay. Um, All right. I want to go to one, to, to some listener comments now. Brandy writes, for many years, and now especially in the face of COVID, we see how racism in this country and the way that it marginalizes and disadvantages African-American people results in health disparities. It is not surprising to me that we would see this inequity in relation to wildfires. African-Americans disproportionately live in communities with poor air quality, suffer from higher rates of asthma and chronic illness, and have decreased access to health care when compared with white people in this country. We also have a question here from Thomas. How long before Highway 37 over the wetlands between Novato and Vallejo is underwater? How long before Delta communities like 
Ailton are underwater. Um, Alejandra Barunda, what is your response to Thomas? And I cannot personally answer this question about that such a highway, but um, I would try to think Oh, I'm sorry. Alejandra, it's quite hard to hear you. Can you speak up a bit? Yeah, I'm so sorry. <laughs> there, that's better. Um, yeah. Okay, good. Um, yeah, I, I would direct Thomas to a couple really interesting and useful um, sea level rise interactive viewers. There's a couple out there that can that can really help give you a sense of, of what the different inundation levels, like how high the seas could get, um, are going to do to different parts of the Bay Area. There's um, one from an organization called Climate Central called Surging Seas, if you Google that, um, and you can play around and look at where exactly the, the shorelines will go, kind of how how much water could, could end up in different parts um, of of the bay. Um, and there's another one uh, called the Adapting to Rising Tides Shoreline Explorer um, that I have always found a really useful tool. And so that can kind of give you a much better sense of, of where some of the first impacts could be felt. Okay. All right. Well, thank you. That's that's very helpful. Um, well, we are talking about how climate change is affecting the Bay Area and what we can do about it with Alejandra Barunda, environment reporter at National Geographic, Dr. Navina Baba, deputy director of health at the San Francisco Department of Public Health, and Dr. Loretta Mickley, senior research fellow at Harvard. And we want to hear from you. We want to hear more of your calls, more of your comments. How have you been feeling the effects of climate change? What questions do you have about what's happening or what's to come here in the Bay Area? And what have you even started doing yourself to mitigate the effects of climate change? Give us a call now at 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. You can also get in touch on Twitter and Facebook. We're at KQED. KQED Forum or email your questions to forum at kqed.org. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. We're talking about how climate change is here in the Bay Area. I'd like to go to a caller now. Um, we're going to go to Jessica. Jessica, you are on the air. Hi, thank you for taking my call. Um, as a parent, one of my most immediate concerns is about the impact of the extreme smoke event on children. And I'm also aware that for many kids, being in school during a smoke event is actually the safest place, um, hopefully especially because of improved filters because of COVID. Mm-hmm. But for others, it's you know possible to leave the area to visit relatives or friends or just get out of the smoke for a couple weeks. And something I've been thinking about a lot and wondering about is it seems like there's an opportunity to, for the schools in the Bay Area and districts to keep some element of remote learning given this climate change that we're, you know, the smoke events we're going to continue to have mm. so that families who can leave can have their kids still be in school and be safe because 
cumulatively, if you have a five-year-old and they're going to be in smoke for the next 15 years, hmm. that's you know going to be really bad for them. Right. Now, obviously, not everybody can do that, but there are families who can, and it seems like we have an opportunity. So I'm just interested in uh the guest comments on that. All right. Thank you. Dr. Loretta Mickley, is this something that you have thought about or what are your thoughts here? Sure. Um, Children exposed to smoke um, could well suffer health effects. This is an area that is uh, an area of study that's still very much uh, new and emerging. Um, But whatever a parent can do to limit that smoke exposure could be helpful. Um, going forward. Um, I do think there are advantages to the remote learning, but I can't say. I know I've read so much about the advantages and disadvantages of remote learning, but perhaps having that as a, as a possibility during extreme smoke episodes would be useful. Again, I, I can't, I think it, the response is different for every family, whether schools are a haven from smoke or whether remote learning is better to limit smoke exposure. Hmm. All right. All right. Well, thank you very much for that. And I'd like to go now to caller Tim from Sunnyvale. Uh, Thank you for taking my call. Um, Four years ago, I I left, I was a high tech career and I left that because I saw so much bad happening with the climate change and I've taken our house zero waste. So we produce only like a quart of trash, um, a week or so. <laughs> wow. And also our house is all electric now, and I bicycle everywhere instead of driving a car because I saw the crisis was so bad. So I'm hoping that a lot of our wealthy listeners will consider taking their houses zero waste as well and going all electric because we have so much, so many people here are capable of doing that. Um, we've got a very wealthy area. Mm. Oh, that sounds like a dream. I'm wondering if you could um, talk a little bit about uh, the impacts of like how that's actually benefited you, if it has. Um, yeah. Actually, um, yeah. So um, actually, it saved me a lot of money. Um, leaving my high tech career and just shifting to working for nonprofits, um, I cut my salary a lot to about a third of what it'd be otherwise. And so, even though that would seem extreme, I have cut my costs also. But going all solar saved me a lot in electricity. It actually cut my electricity bill to a third. Mm. Wow. I even took a business trip, by the way, from San Francisco to Boston, all by bicycle, 5,000 miles. And I gave 254 talks about <laughs> climate change across the United States. Wow, that's pretty cool. All right. Well, thank you so much. Um, so I, I'm curious if some of our listeners can respond. So what we're hearing from Tim is someone who's taken, um, you know, actions in his own life. He's done a lot of individual changes. And as he alluded to, um, that's something that some people can can afford to do here in the Bay Area and other people cannot. Um, so talk a little bit about, and I think I'm going to go to you, um, Alejandra Barunda, since I think you've written about this generally, but in terms of how to make an impact, um, there is there are individual things that we can do, and there are systems changes that that can be made. Can you talk about um, about the benefits of both of those things? Yeah, of course. And I think I think there's so much that to be done that that any any and all action is a is good at this point. Um, and Tim can maybe help a lot of his neighbors and, and colleagues and friends understand how that, that can work in action, which is really cool. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I think that there's, there's, there is a lot that you can do in your own individual um, to, to kind of help move things forward. And, and like you were saying, there's a lot that you can do if you can afford it right now to, to change the way that you're home situation is set up um, to change 
the way that you commute to change the way that you uh, think about the waste. Um, and all of those are really, really valuable. And I think one of the, the, the sociological research has actually shown that, that one of the big advantages of individual action is actually helping kind of generate change in attitude and behavior and opinion amongst peers and friends. Um, so so mm. helping to kind of make this a more collective action and to get people to see that it doesn't all have to be so hard necessarily is, is in and of itself a really valuable thing to do. Um, Great. And then I, I, I want to hear, then, yeah, if you, if you don't mind talking about, so there is that, and, and that's like, that is a small drop in the bucket, right, of what we as individuals can do. But there is much greater impact to be had with policy solutions. Is that correct? Yeah, exactly. And I was, I, I kind of got at this a little bit earlier, but I, I think for for me, what I've come to after uh, a long time thinking about about these questions is is that it shouldn't have to be so hard <laughs> to save the planet, right? Like it it shouldn't have to be people behaving virtuously and and making the right decisions all the time because those are you know that's yeah that's exhausting. Can't always do that. It's a lot of guilt that comes with that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. And so then not, what? Sh- that's not yeah, the way. And again. Um, and so I think there's there's a lot of really interesting conversations happening right now about how we can we can kind of make the societal level changes that will make it easier for everyone to to collectively work toward this future. And so I, I think the really valuable things right now are just kind of supporting the the efforts to decarbonize in whatever way we can. So there's a lot mm-hmm. of conversation in California about renewable energy, right, and mm-hmm. how much renewable energy we can handle on the grid and, and we should be aiming for. Um, there's a lot of conversation right now about oil and gas drilling in yeah. the state and, and beyond and, and so, at what point mm. we should start to phase that out. So, so, so to me, it sounds like what you're saying is regardless of how much money you have, um, what you can do is get involved with these policy level decisions, right? Talking to your legislator, for example, writing to your legislator, getting involved with community groups that work on climate change. Yeah, and I would say that uh, the community level work can be really, really valuable and important. And a, a couple of your colleagues just uh, worked on a really wonderful story about how East Palo Alto has has done some yeah. really impressive work to kind of mitigate um, the effects of sea level rise, which we were talking about earlier, which is already affecting the community. Mm-hmm. And a lot of that work was really driven by the community itself, by people in the place who were experiencing the thing and saw a problem and wanted to figure out how to fix it. Yes, Um, yes. And so, yeah, get involved with your local groups. There's a lot to be done. (laughs) Well, thank you. Um, I want to address this this really excellent uh, comment we got from from Butch. Butch writes, prescribed fires, you're putting CO2 into the atmosphere? Are you nuts? Um, So, Dr. Loretta Mickley, can you address that? Why would that be a helpful thing to do? Yes. So um, that's a common um, issue that comes up. But you have to remember, the West has always burned. The Earth has always had fires. Yes, carbon dioxide is released, but in a healthy world, that carbon dioxide is taken up again as the vegetation regrows. So there's a net carbon balance of zero. 
Hmm. If you have a healthy world, and then and then by you know setting prescribed fires, uh, are we avoiding putting more CO two in? Uh, when you know by helping to avoid these catastrophic wildfires that we really don't have uh, too that's much of a handle on. True. That's okay. that's true as well. Yeah. Okay. Thank you. That is very helpful. Uh, Chrissy, who lives in the Santa Cruz Mountain, writes, This year we've had extreme drought. The forest is as dry as normally it is in June or July. Last year we had fires which burned down many of our neighbors' homes. And many new neighbors cannot get fire insurance for their houses. In addition, to our, in addition, our schools are not set up for extreme heat. They have to cancel classes some days because of the heat. I grew up here and we never saw temperatures above 104 in the last several years. It's been 106 or 112. That is very hot. Um, uh, Dr. Baba, uh, can you talk about this? What are... Um, you know, what are you seeing in this comment? And also, what are some potential uh, actions that Chrissy and people in her community can take uh, to protect their community? Yeah, I think what Chrissy is experiencing is uh, what a lot of um, communities are experiencing. And um, the fact that these kind of, the, the temperatures have not risen that high, nor have we seen wildfires like this, um, really does require us to shift um, how we think about infrastructure, how we build our homes, how we build our cities, um, and what we can do to mitigate this. And there's, you know, there's short term, there's medium term, and there's long term solutions here. Um, to Chrissy's comments, I, I think that she's really trying to get to what can we do to prevent some of this from happening. And we've talked a little bit about greenhouse um, gas emissions, but in, in the interim, we are looking at, you know, especially for places that have been built, you know, a long time ago and, and don't have adequate ventilation or cooling capacity. How can we get that to people um, in a way that they can survive, you know, extreme heat events. Um, and this includes the infrastructure, not only in homes, but as, as was mentioned, schools and community centers, um, really um, thinking through adaptation and resiliency models um, so that everybody has access to them. And again, um, depending on, you know, your ability um, to pay for or to afford these measures, not everybody can do that. And so working with our community groups and our community members to think through, um, innovative ways um, to provide access to those that potentially don't have it. Yeah. So what if you are one of these people, you're listening to it and you're like, I don't, I don't individually feel like I can, you know, take this on myself. But like, what is a way that someone could, uh, could get involved who's hearing this and saying, you know, it's too hot and I need, we need to change our school. Our school's too hot. I, what I would encourage is generally um, we have seen, you know, climate action um, groups come together in many different communities to try to address this. And each community is going to have its own vulnerabilities um, and its own concerns. So really looking for those local groups that are working on these issues um, to understand what is happening um, and how you can plug in. Okay. All right. Great. Because I think that's really, you know, it, it's it's really challenging to look at this problem, hear these numbers about just how much the water will rise, just how we have to come to terms with fire, with smoke, um, and with heat, and and to really feel paralyzed as to what to do. So that's helpful. Um, I'd like to go now to a caller from San Jose, Linda. Um, she she is part of a local group. So um, so Linda, please tell us how did how have you worked on a solution? Yes. Hi. 
You know, I had a climate wake-up call as a parent um, in about 2013 when I realized that if I didn't care enough as a parent to get involved in climate, who did I think would care more than a parent about their kid's future? Mm, And so I co-founded a local group, yeah, called Mothers Out Front Silicon Valley. And we are a small, mighty group of mothers and others that are working for local climate solutions. And we were able to help convince the San Jose City Council to adopt community choice aggregation, which means that San Jose enjoys its own choices about where we get our um, our energy from, much more renewable energy than PG&E. Now we're going to be working on a school bus campaign, um, electrifying school buses, and this will help children with the immediate impact of air pollution, as well as help the climate. And there's many groups like Mothers Out Front, Actera is another wonderful group working on local solutions. And I would say to any parent out there, don't sit on the sidelines. If you're willing to take your child to a soccer game, then you should be willing to take your child to a climate protest or to city council and speak up for the changes that we need. We can do this. And as parents, it's part of our job. Oh, thank you so much for that, Linda. That was That's really encouraging to hear. Um, I want to just uh, flip back to, uh, to prescribed burns. Uh, we have a comment from Jordan. I've been doing controlled burns for 40 years. And the reason prescribed burns pose much less smoke risk than wildfires is because we burn in late fall and winter when the weather is cool and rainy. The rain suppresses the smoke. Well, that is great to learn. And also to a comment from Pam. She writes, I think California is not taking this seriously enough. For example, we should already be implementing strict water conservation measures now. California is still fracking. This process uses an inordinate amount of water, sucks the soil dry, pollutes the earth, at a minimum, the use of water that is needed elsewhere. Um, and and to flip back to that wildfire issue, let's go to caller Ann from West Marin, who seems to have an idea about how to deal with fire. Uh, hi, thanks so hi. much for taking my call. Thanks for um, being here. Such a great, yeah, such a great discussion. So um, I'm curious for your guest to comment on the idea of using livestock as a way to mitigate brush and grasses and other vegetation, um, you know, different species eat different things, goats, uh, sheep, cattle, for example, can all really knock back a lot of excess uh, vegetation while doing a couple things. You know, one is the obvious, producing food for the meat eaters out there. And then two is, you know, there's so much research coming out now around how livestock help to sequester carbon through their grazing by eating down the plants, which then, you know, regrow and draw carbon back down into the soil. So it's kind of an alternative to prescribed grazing where, I mean, to prescribed fires where, Mm. you know, CO2 is released back into the atmosphere using prescribed fires, whereas livestock is, you know, drawing it back down and it's sort of a a win-win-win in in some ways. So I, Mm. I love some thoughts on that. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. I've never heard of that one. What do you think, Dr. Mickley? Yes, your caller has identified what we call passive fire suppression. Mm. Active fire suppression is when you have groups of hotshot fighters going out into the into the fires. But passive suppression is what happens when you have these cattle grazing across much of the West, in fact, the interior West, um, that um, draw down the or 
pare back, I should say, the vegetation and leave less vegetation for fires to burn. Um, I'm not going to comment on the overall carbon balance of having this kind of effect, but um, truly it's a way to uh, curb the spatial extent of fires. Mm-hmm. Okay, great. Um, thank you. Well, that would also be really adorable if there were just goats wandering around our neighborhoods more frequently. Um, all right. Uh, so uh, let's go to a few comments here. Uh, we have Jeff who says, I live between Stanford and the Pacific in the coastal mountains. The biggest change from climate aside from fire, I was evacuated last summer, is the change in bird life. Ravens dominate everything now. Fewer songbirds, noisy and ominous. They are a daily reminder of the changes in nature. And Eric tweets, could we combat sea level rise by building desalination desalination plants instead of relying on inner water infrastructure that could be prone to earthquakes? Um, Well, I think we're going to have to leave it there because we're coming up on the end of our show. But thank you all so much for calling in. Um, and for sharing your comments. We've been talking about climate change in the Bay Area with Alejandra Barunda, environment reporter at National Geographic, Dr. Navina Baba, deputy director of health at the San Francisco Department of Public Health, and Dr. Loretta Mickley, senior research fellow at Harvard. You've been listening to Forum. I'm Laura Clivens. Stay tuned for another hour of Forum Ahead with Mina Kim. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio and the Germanicos Foundation and the Generosity Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country. We need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.